But this morning, we're going to be in Luke 5. We're continuing to look at the life of Jesus. And we'll be looking at, this morning, Jesus dealing with a question of spiritual disciplines and the motivation behind spiritual disciplines. Um, It's a really fascinating interaction because this is something that you can find a lot of different opinions on out there. And so, as with everything, it is of the utmost importance that we know what Scripture says But if you will, before we begin in Luke 5, please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the exuberance of youth and just the unbridled excitement of youth. And we thank you for the wisdom and the maturity and experience of age. And we thank you for everything in between and the process that you grow us from youth into age, and it is just such a privilege to be part of a body that has all of that. And so we ask that we would learn from one another, we'd be encouraged by one another. This would be a unified body that transcends even the simple things like age demographics. And we pray for the churches that are facing this fear as they're looking at what's going to happen to the future of the church, that you would encourage them and that you would raise up uh, the young people in these countries. But this morning, as we open your word, Lord, teach us to hear, teach us to understand, take us far beyond what we are capable on our own. This is in you, this is through you, this is by you, and this is all for you. Remind us of that always. We give you the glory. We ask that this continuation of worship would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Luke 5, starting in verse 33, and just reading a few verses. This is an account that also appears in Matthew and Mark, but we're going to be looking at the one in Luke. This is Luke 5, 33 through 39. And they said to him, the the section heading in my Bible says, a question about fasting. And 33 starts, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. I want to specifically look at, as we consider this, the question of fasting. It's really a question of spiritual discipline. And they ask him, they say, hey, why do the disciples of John the Baptist, why do the disciples of the Pharisee engage in this spiritual discipline, but your disciples don't? And they want to talk about the behavior They want to talk about the external, but Jesus, I think Jesus' answer is so fascinating. They ask, why don't your disciples behave externally in this same manner? And Jesus answers by addressing the motivations. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. He goes to addressing the motivation for the external behavior for the spiritual discipline of fasting. And so if we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at fasting as as an example But the principles, hopefully we'll see, the principles carry to spiritual disciplines as a whole using this example of fasting in the conversation that Jesus has. But if we're going to start, we have to understand what is a spiritual discipline. 
And a spiritual discipline, to put it simply, is something given to us by God for the purpose of deepening our relationship with him. I love how Dallas Willard quotes it, or phrases it rather in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Dallas Willard calls it an activity undertaken to bring us into more effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. So when you think of spiritual disciplines, you see throughout scripture, you see the spiritual discipline of fasting, but you also see the spiritual discipline of prayer. You see the spiritual discipline of serving, the spiritual discipline of tithing, the spiritual discipline of reading and meditating on scripture. And so you're looking at these spiritual disciplines that have been given to us by God for his glory to draw us into deeper relationship with him, to bring us into more effective cooperation with his kingdom. And as we consider spiritual disciplines, again, that whole list I just went through, the macro spiritual disciplines using fasting as an example, we do, I want, I want to start, you're not supposed to start with a negative, but I do want to start with, this can be abused, right? I've said this numerous, numerous times. We're going to take as many of our cues in life as from the Bible as possible. The Bible is not afraid to talk about uncomfortable truths and difficult topics, so we're going to do the same. And in Scripture, we see that spiritual disciplines can be abused. And this is a real problem facing the church today. And this is painful. This causes damage. We are not minimizing any of the damage that is caused when churches abuse the discipline of prayer, when they abuse the discipline of Scripture, when they abuse the discipline of serving and of tithing. Because like I said, you see abuses of this spiritual discipline in Scripture. In Isaiah 58 you see what happens in the abuse of spiritual discipline of fasting. And it, we're going to start with the first verse here. God is speaking to the people of Israel through Isaiah, and he quotes the people of Israel. And God says, as the people of Israel, he says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, and now God is speaking. So the people of Israel said, God, we fasted and, and you don't see it. We're fasting and you're not acknowledging it. Why aren't you giving us these things that we're asking for when we fast? And so now God replies. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? You see the people of Israel abusing the discipline of fasting and God calls his people out on it. He doesn't let them get away with complaining about, God, you're not answering our prayers, but we're fasting. We're doing what you tell us to do. What's going on? God says, no, you're not fasting for me. You're fasting for yourself. And it's, it's superficial. It's shallow. You're going through the rituals of fasting, but your behavior isn't changing at all. It's the same problem that we see in Zechariah 7. This is unfortunately something that pops up numerous times in the history of God's people. Zechariah 7, verses 2 through 6. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? 
And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? God twice has to tell the people of Israel, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the point of fasting. See, one of the abuses, unfortunately, of spiritual disciplines can be an attempt to manipulate God. It's what the people of Israel were doing in Isaiah. It's what the people of Israel were doing in Zechariah. They were going through the motions. They were engaging in this behavior. They were participating in a spiritual discipline that God had given to them, but the whole point of it was to try and force God's hand. And it's very clearly identified as an abuse of the spiritual discipline. Another abuse of spiritual disciplines is to try and brag, to try and impress other people with how holy you are. Or once again, it is not about God, it is about you. And we see Jesus, hopefully you've been reading. Last week I said read the passage in Luke 18 every day. So you should be familiar with these two verses that we're about to read. It was in what we read every day last week. But in Luke 18, 11 through 12, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The point of his spiritual discipline was to impress people, to impress God with how holy he is and how much better he is. These are abuses of spiritual disciplines. But tragically, and what we can't allow ourselves to do is sometimes people allow abuses of scriptural truths to cause them to reject those truths. And if you've heard the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, we can't do that with spiritual disciplines. Yes, people abuse. In modern church, people abuse the discipline of prayer. People abuse the discipline of fasting. People abuse the discipline of tithing. People abuse the discipline of serving. But that is no excuse for us to reject that spiritual discipline. I've got, so I've shared with you before, I grew up a pastor's kid, right? And pastor's kid, don't, don't look this up, but I'm pretty sure pastor's kid in Hebrew translates to sermon illustration. And this morning I've got my dad here, and pastor's dad also translates to sermon illustration. So to give, yeah, see, this is payback. So to give a little bit of his biography so you understand why I'm about to ask him, I'm, I'm going to ask him a question about marriage. My dad was a vocational pastor for many years. He has ample experience in counseling. He's been involved in Christian education for years. He's been married to my mom for 34 years. So my dad understands, as much as we give him a hard time, he understands marriage and relationships, okay? Dad, is it legitimate, is it a good thing for me to give my wife something unexpected? Yes. It's a good thing for me to do something nice unexpectedly for my wife. Adeline, those flowers are for you. Because I was thinking of you this morning. I should have, close your ears, I should have told you my motivation in doing that was to try and manipulate her later this week. I gave her flowers today so that on Thursday when we're trying to pick out dinner, I can say, hey, I, I gave you flowers, you owe me. You have to do what I want because I did something nice for you. Is that, with all your psychology background and counseling, is that legitimate motivation? No. <laughs> Shoot. That's not good. Okay, what if my secondary motivation was to point out to all you husbands that I'm better than you? I mean, you didn't get mom flowers. Definitely not. That is also not valid motivation. Shoot. Okay, so it's not valid motivation for me to give Addie flowers to manipulate her or to try and brag that I'm a better husband than you. So what you're saying then is none of the other husbands in here should ever do anything nice for their wives because I messed it up, right? 
Oh. And we laugh, right? That's a goofy, thank you, I didn't embarrass you, right? We laugh, that's a goofy example. That seems silly and trivial. Of course, Sam. I would never think that because you messed up giving flowers to your wife, I should never do anything nice to my wife. But Christians, we fall into this trap with spiritual disciplines. We fall into this trap with the biblical truths we see laid out for us. Well, I was part of a small group that just used prayer for gossip material, so now I won't pray with other people. I won't engage in prayer with anyone else because I've seen people abuse it. Well, I've seen a church abuse, abuse its finances, so now I don't tithe. I've seen a church be legalistic about fasting and be legalistic about serving, so now I neither fast nor serve. So it seems silly when we're talking about flowers. And as I've said before, any metaphor using people is going to be imperfect when we're talking about the perfect, righteous Father. But it seems trivial when we're talking about flowers, but we must guard against taking the same principles into our lives as we relate to the scriptural truths laid out for us. That just because they may be abused by people, and again, I am not minimizing the hurt and the damage that is caused when Christians are abused by other Christians distorting scripture. That, that is so real and painful. But just because... A scriptural truth may be abused does not negate the necessity of that truth in our lives. And you see this with the spiritual disciplines. And so if we cannot validate, we cannot measure the validation of a scriptural truth based on how people handle it, how must we measure the validation of spiritual disciplines? Well, we must go to the source. We must go to God's word. So what does the Bible say? Is the idea of spiritual disciplines, is this something that even appears in the Bible? And yes. You've got 1 Timothy 4.7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Other translations will say train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for righteousness. This is a theme that appears many times in Paul's writings. As he says, train, I train my body like a runner to discipline myself. He says, make every effort to add to your faith. Throughout scripture, you see a theme of discipline yourself. Christian, be disciplined. Christian, be training yourself. Christian, be working at this. And so the question then for me shifts from, okay, I, I believe the Bible is clear. We are to be spiritually disciplined. So then how? Where do we even start? If I am to be spiritually disciplined, but I'm unfamiliar with this, where do I go to even begin this process? Well, again, what does God's word say? 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And what's the last phrase? For training in righteousness. God's word demonstrates you are to train yourselves in righteousness. How are you to begin? Where are you to go for this training, for this disciplining? Go to scripture. So then the question for me naturally becomes, okay, I am to be spiritually trained. I am to be training myself in spiritual disciplines. I am to begin with Scripture. As we're looking then at the spiritual discipline of fasting, what does Scripture say? Is this something that only pops up once or twice? Do we only see negative examples? Is this really Sam fasting? Is fasting really a part of the Christian life? Well, let's look at the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see that fasting was a part of the lives of God's people in the Old Testament, you have Nehemiah 1-4. through 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You have Daniel 9.3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Joel 2.12, this is now God speaking, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah was speaking, and Daniel, Daniel was speaking. In Joel 2.12, God is now speaking, and he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Fasting is absolutely a part of the lives of God's people in the Old Testament. What about when Jesus comes? Does Jesus, didn't Jesus, didn't he, did he replace the old covenant? Did he get rid of the old covenant? Did this change? Well, how does Jesus talk about fasting? Jesus himself fasted. Matthew 4, 2, and after fasting 40 days and night, Jesus was hungry. Jesus taught about fasting. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. See, that goes back to what God addressed in Isaiah and Zechariah. When you fast, don't be like the people who make fasting about themselves, who make fasting about amplifying themselves, about putting the attention on themselves. Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus fasted and Jesus taught, hey, here's how you are to fast. And there are two interesting details in how Jesus taught about fasting. He says, when you fast. Jesus doesn't say, if you fast. Jesus says, when you fast. But no, Jesus also doesn't give a legalistic timetable for fasting. Jesus doesn't say, when you fast twice a week, when you fast once a month, when you fast once every other month, when you fast for four days, when you fast for seven days, Jesus just says, when you fast. So the implication is that it is about you and God, and it will be a part of your life, but we have to guard that we can't allow people to put our own restrictions then on that, of, well, this is when you fast, for how long and how frequent, and this is exactly how it looks. No, Jesus doesn't talk about that, but he also doesn't say if, he says when. And then we move beyond Jesus. Jesus ascends, Jesus returns to heaven. Okay, is fasting still a part of the lives of God's people? Is fasting still a part of, even after Jesus returns, after Jesus returns to heaven, do we still see fasting in the lives of God's people? And we do. In Luke 2, 37, talking about Anna, the widow Anna, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Acts 9, 9 and 11, and for three days Saul was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And then the Lord, in, in the middle verse, in verse 10, God sends someone, hey, go speak to Saul. And in verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man, named Tar a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Saul fasted and prayed for three days after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Acts 13, 2 through 3, talking about the early church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In Acts 14, 23, continuing to look at the early church. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we see, I think the Bible is abundantly clear that the spiritual discipline of fasting, spiritual disciplines as a macro, micro example of fasting, is a regular part of the, the lives of God's people throughout the Old Testament. It does not cease when Jesus comes. It does not cease when Jesus ascends. Fasting continues to be a part of the lives of the church throughout the New Testament. But what's the difference? We looked at negative examples of fasting in Isaiah and Zechariah. We looked at all these other examples of fasting in Nehemiah and Daniel and Joel and Luke and Acts. What's the difference? Let's go back to the original definition that we talked about. What is a spiritual discipline? A spiritual discipline is a practice given to us by God designed to draw us deeper in relationship with Him. To quote Willard again, it is a practice designed to make us more effective in our cooperation with Christ and His kingdom. We use the example of a flower, right? In Isaiah and Zechariah, fasting was done to manipulate. Fasting was done to brag. Fasting was done to impress. That's wrong. So what do we see then about fasting as an appropriate spiritual discipline? What, what did we see in, in Nehemiah, in Daniel, in Joel, in Acts, in Luke? We saw that fasting was a part of grieving sin. I mean, grief over sin. Grief from sin. Don't raise your hands, but has anyone in this room been grieved by sin? We saw that fasting was a part of repentance in seeking God's mercy, a part of repenting before the Lord, turning from sin. We just preached on repenting two weeks ago. We preached on repenting earlier in this series. Has anyone in this room ever had cause to repent? That, every hand should have gone up if we were doing hands. What else do we see about fasting? We see that it's a part of praising and worshiping God of submitting ourselves before Him to praise His holy name. Fasting is a part of that. Has anyone in this room ever had reason to praise God? We see that fasting is a part of seeking God's will. What do we see? I love the later examples in Acts as the church is seeking the will of God. They are worshiping and fasting, and when they hear direction from God, they respond with fasting to make sure they're listening to His voice. We see that fasting is part of seeking the will of God. Has anyone in this room ever had cause to seek the will of God and to seek to understand His direction? And then in the very last example in Acts, they had appointed the elders and they fasted and laid hands and they dedicated these men, they consecrated, they set apart the leaders of the church for God and we see that fasting is a part of this. So throughout Scripture, we see that fasting is indeed a very legitimate and valuable and beneficial and blessed spiritual discipline that draws us into deeper intimacy with God if it is done with the right heart. That's the theme throughout this series that we've looked at, that it's not about the external rituals. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about the behaviors. It's about the heart of the people, a heart of submission before the Lord, a heart that desires to know the Lord better. So the point of this sermon, as we look at the spiritual discipline of fasting, I'm not telling you, Mike, I now expect you to fast on Tuesday and Thursday every other week between these hours. That is what's required of you. No, 
But what I am saying is the Bible makes it very clear that fasting is a very real spiritual discipline in the lives of God's people. And I can't help but wonder if it's one of those spiritual disciplines that we've ceased to think about today. And we've ceased to apply today. And we've ceased to make part of our lives today. Because maybe we've seen it abused, so now we avoid it entirely. Or maybe we've never even considered fasting, so maybe this message this morning just needed to make you aware that, look, fasting is a part of the lives of God's people throughout Scripture. Have you ever considered if it's a part of your life? I mean, we see how fasting is used by God's people. I would dare say that every person in here can check off at least three of those list items. So the question is more to go back from the micro example of fasting back to the macro idea of spiritual disciplines. Are spiritual disciplines a part of your life? Can you truthfully say, I am a spiritually disciplined person. I am training myself for righteousness. I am disciplining myself for godliness. Or have we ceased to consider that these spiritual disciplines should be a part of who we are as children of God, drawing deeper and deeper into relationship with God? But as always, it must be about a proper heart before the Lord. Jesus is asked about the behavior. Jesus answers by addressing the motivation. Jesus is asked about the external. Jesus answers by addressing the internal we have to be willing to ask ourselves similar questions. And so this week with every week, we've got stuff to read and, and to contemplate throughout, the, throughout this week, especially as we look at where we're going next as Jesus talks about the new covenant. Jesus talks about being Lord of the Sabbath. We read an excerpt from Isaiah 58 this morning. Every day this week, let's read all of Isaiah 58. Let's read Isaiah 58 every day this week together. I mean, on our own, if you want to do it together with people literally in person, that's awesome. But let's read Isaiah 58 every day this week. And then just in case, just in case there's still a question of, well, but isn't it still okay if I do it with the wrong motivation, right? As long as I'm doing the act, isn't that okay? Read Malachi. As you read Isaiah 58, read Malachi and look at, look at how God talks about going through the motions with the wrong motivation. Look at how, how strict God addresses just doing the external behavior without the appropriate heart. And ask yourself, as you read Malachi, ask yourself, is God interested in the wrong heart as long as you just go through the motions? And as we read Isaiah 58, as we read Malachi with this idea of fasting, this idea of spiritual disciplines as a whole, ask yourself, why do I do what I do? I mean, really consider, why are you sitting in that chair this morning? Are you sitting in the chair this morning? Because that's what you do on Sunday, right? This is Ohio. This is America. You go to church on Sunday. That's why I'm here. I'm here to see my friends. I don't see them Monday through, through Saturday. So on Sunday morning, I show up to see my friends. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with seeing your friends. I love seeing my friends on Sunday morning. But is that your motivation for being here? Is your motivation for being at church, for being part of church, God's glory or is it about yourself? Why do I do what I do? For whom do I do what I do? Ask yourself these questions as you read Isaiah 58 and as you read Malachi. And then the prayer is simple. And again, you don't have to pray this. We, we offer a prayer idea in case you're still growing in prayer and you're unfamiliar with prayer still. But Lord, teach me and grow in me the proper heart. 
Grow in me a heart that is properly motivated by your glory, for your glory, for knowing you better, for nothing else. But those are going to be the questions that we ask ourselves this week as we look at, are we a church with the proper motivation? Or are we a church that's more concerned with going through the motions? And specifically, if you want to ask yourself, is fasting, has it ever been a part of my life? If not, why not? Have I ever thought about it? And we'll continue to look at spiritual disciplines as we continue with this series, but that's where we'll leave ourselves this week. Please join me in prayer. Lord, oh God, you are so good. And we thank you for two things. We thank you that you give us a relationship that is meant to go deeper. We thank you that you desire a relationship that grows that we come to know you more and to love you more and to reflect Christ more. We thank you that you change us and transform us. And we thank you that you have given us disciplines and the means to do so, that you have told us to train ourselves in righteousness, to discipline ourselves for godliness, and then you don't leave us hanging. You go on and you give the details of what that looks like so that we can look at our lives and we can apply discipline to grow in godliness and in righteousness. Lord, I plead that this would be a church that is properly motivated. That this would be a church that has no interest in going through the motions, but that this would be a church whose hearts are entirely devoted and surrendered to you in everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.